Remember a messenger, every worshiper a witness. What a powerful message that holds, and what a wonderful time of worship we've had today. Thank you for the choir and the worship team, the accompanists who have led us. I was, I was really struck uh, by the words of the song that they sang just before the video, and there was a line from that that took my mind back to an event that happened this past summer. I'm not afraid to be counted, but I'm willing to give my life. Middle of July, I got a very concerning message about one of our leading Southern Baptist Convention pastors and a personal friend of mine uh, who had been detained overseas. He was on a mission trip. He was uh, sharing the gospel alongside a national partner uh, in a place where man's laws do not permit the gospel to be shared. Of course, man's laws cannot stop the advance of the gospel. But uh, man's laws try to interrupt sometimes the advance of the gospel, and that apparently had happened as this pastor had been sharing, and he was detained, taken in to the police station, national partner, uh, arrested and processed. Uh, I, in light of the report and having the brother's cell phone number, just sent him a quick text, text message uh, that uh, said this, are you good, brother? <laughs> uh, he replied, Yes, I'm okay. Was just escorted to a boat and will be sent to the main island. Was detained, but hopefully that's the end of it for me. Praying for our partner, a partner which the good news is some 20-something days later was processed through the court system and released. Some days later, I received this message, which I was very relieved to receive. Made it home last night after having to leave the trip early. Just wanted to know how thankful I am and praying with you for more gospel advance in those islands. Well, I knew Josh Powell was all in. I just didn't know he was also willing to be in jail for the gospel. But how thankful I am to be at a church today where probably many of you as members of the church didn't even know that event had happened security concerns. We were a little cautious at the time to make much of the news public. But to see uh, evidence of a brother who was willing to go, willing to serve, willing to risk, willing to be all in for the gospel blesses me. And to see a church, Pastor Josh, that uh, every indication is a church that's all in for the gospel also blesses me. And one of the things that I want to do as I'm here today with you, First Taylors, is just to say thank you. Thank you for being all in for the gospel. Thank you for being all in with the International Mission Board. In fact, uh, of our 47,000 churches across the Southern Baptist Convention, you are at the top in terms of being a church that is going 150 just this past year in, in uh, sense of being a church that's praying. I know that you're praying in partnership with so many of our missionaries around the world. Uh, being a church that's sending, as we see the evidence of more and more members going out from First Taylors and serving, share the gospel around the world, and being obviously uh, a church that is all in for the gospel. We thank the Lord for you uh, 
Uh, you're incredibly generous in your cooperative program giving, your Lottie Moon Christmas offering giving, and it is a blessing. On behalf of those 3,550 missionaries and their 2,700 kids, let me today say thank you. We love you, and we see such evidence of your love for the Lord, for the work, and for the workers. And I praise God for you. This morning, I want our attention to be focused on uh, why what we are doing together is so important. Why what we are doing together is so important. And when I say together, uh, I'm also thankful for all the churches of South Carolina Baptist Convention. Charlie Swain, thank you for leading an effort to recruit more young people from this state than we're seeing uh, brought to the IMB from any state. It's great to see the Palmetto Collective uh, young people here. I know so many of them are in the process with the IMB. Why is that important? Why is what we're doing together so important? Well, I'm going to turn our attention to a passage of Scripture in the book of Romans, chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 9 through 18, Romans chapter 3. And as you're turning to there in your Bible or clicking your device on and searching or maybe turning your attention to the screen if the words are there, let me set a little context for this passage. If you're familiar with the book of Romans, then you know that the Apostle Paul uh, is the one who penned it. God is its author. But in penning it, Paul is addressing a lot of essential concerns for the church. He's clarifying the gospel, uh, the need uh, of the gospel to get to the nations. But there's also something that, especially in light of the events of the last couple of weeks, seems especially relevant today as Paul is expressing concern for his own people. Paul was a Jew. Paul was an Israelite. Paul's concern was this. Jesus, the Messiah, had come from the Jews, just as the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied. And yet so many of the Jews, so many of the Israelites, had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Paul's concern is for his people who have rejected Jesus. And one of the questions that Paul wrestles with concerns all of the promises that we find that God has made to his people, the Israelites, these elect people of God that we read about throughout the pages of the Old Testament. What of the state of those promises in light of the fact that so many of the Jews have rejected Jesus as the Savior? Will God's promises to them be kept? And ultimately, Paul concludes, absolutely, they will be kept because every promise God has ever made is kept. God is not a liar. God always does what God says he will do. And yet, as we'll see here in Romans 3, the reality of God's promises to a people does not exclude any individual for responsibility for their own sin or what they do with Jesus, who is the only Savior. As Paul wrestles with this, we come to Romans 3, beginning in verse 9, where Paul is comparing the state of the individual Jew or Israelite and the state of the rest of us, those who are Gentiles or Greeks. And Paul asks this question in verse 9, What then are we Jews any better off? That is, in light of all the promises that God has made, are we any better off? Paul says, no, not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and the rest of us, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Those words are not condemning enough. Here, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Clearly, as Paul is concerned about his own people, Paul recognizes that that concern is warranted, especially for the individual members of the Israelite family. But it's a concern that is warranted for the individual members of the human family. As Paul makes it clear that indeed God's promises will be kept to the Jews. However, every individual, whether Jew or the rest of us, must give an account before God for the way we have lived our lives, for the way we have sinned and fallen short. In that sense, all of us are in the same boat. Paul communicates what he does about the reality of the sinfulness of human beings. Paul is essentially calling to our attention the greatest problem in our world today. Now, we know there are a lot of problems in our world today, aren't there? In fact, it doesn't take more than five minutes of uh, scrolling through uh, the headlines on my phone or uh, looking at them on the computer screen or if I can even bear to watch a television newscast. Within five minutes, I'm almost clinically depressed as I think about all of the problems in our world. Those problems go on and on and on. We have a new war now in the Middle East, the ongoing war in Eastern Europe. We live in a day where more people are enslaved in the world than at any point in human history. We live in a time where there are more displaced peoples from the unrest and wars and famines around the globe. We live in a day where there are so many problems. Yet among all the problems in the world, there is one that rises above every one of them. This is the problem that Paul is addressing here in Romans 3. It's the problem that Pastor Josh challenges uh, this church to address every Sunday. It is the problem of lostness, spiritual lostness, the state of, of a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl being separated from God, having a broken relationship with God because of our sin, our wrongdoing. Now, why, in light of all the problems that, that you're aware of in the world and in your own life, and I'm aware of in the world, in my own life, why would I say that a spiritual condition is the world's greatest problem? There's a long list of reasons. I want to highlight two for you this morning. And the first is this. Lostness is the only lasting problem. It's the only problem out of all the problems in the world that is, in fact, an eternal problem. You think about all the problems in your life. 
You think about all the problems in the world? I'm talking about little problems, big problems. Problems with the Gamecocks. <laughs> problems with our political system. Problems like wars and famines. Essentially, every problem that you could name in your life would disappear the moment you die. When you die, you don't care who wins the World Series. You don't care who uh, makes the uh, NCAA uh, final whatever at the end of a season. Your lower back pains will be gone. <laughs> your financial problems, your family problems, all the problems that maybe have plagued you for a long, long time, they'll disappear the moment you die except for one. And that is if you die separated from God. If a person dies lost, the magnitude of that problem only really sets in the moment you die. What does that look like? You know, the Bible says God is love. What would it be like to face eternity with no love? That is the hatred and the anguish the scriptures describe as hell. The Bible says that the Spirit of God is our comforter. Can you imagine what it would be like to spend eternity with no comfort in your life, no source of comfort? That's the eternal suffering that the Scriptures describe as hell. The Bible says Christ is our joy. What would it be like to spend forever with no joy? That's the eternal sorrow and grieving that is hell. The Bible says Jesus is your life. What would it be like to face forever without life? The Bible calls hell the place of eternal death, of eternal dying. This is the only lasting problem. But it's not just a lasting and eternal problem. Lostness is the world's greatest problem because it's a universal problem. That is to say, it's everyone's problem. Some go hungry. Some live uh, as victims of human trafficking. Some have back problems. Some endure cancer. Some have problems in their families. Some have financial problems. Every human being has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. Paul drives that home here in Romans 3, does he not? In fact, just in the first three or four verses, no less than nine times, Paul makes that point in unequivocal ways. Looking again at those verses, Paul, after asking the question, are we Jews any better off, uh, says in verse 9, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. If someone was reading Paul's words then or hearing them today and thinking, well, I grant you, that's a problem for a whole lot of people, but it's not my problem. Paul's going to use an illustration here uh, to to drive home his point. It's the same illustration that, that James uses in James 3. And Paul is going to reference uh, the, this, this example here in Romans 3. 
essentially saying this, if you think that you've never done anything wrong, you think that I'm not talking about you, then consider just for a moment your words. If Paul was with us today, he might say, why don't you record yourself talking for a while and play it back? (laughs) And then you'll agree with me. Interesting article that appeared in the Atlantic a few months back. It was the title of the article that caught my attention. The article was entitled, Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. <laughs> and with a title like that, I thought I need to read that article. Uh, the article was written by uh, a fellow named Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. Uh, it was fascinating to me as a, as a minister, as a preacher, what, uh, what he did uh, in the article as he was talking about the past ten years of American life and uh, how uh, our culture, our society seems to be uniquely stupid compared to uh, the days of old. And, and, and he actually uses a Bible illustration. He points to uh, an Old Testament record about the Tower of Babel. Do you, you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? A time when the people of the land came together wanting to make a name for themselves. They wanted to do something great, and they decided, uh, like uh, many generations uh, before and since, that the best way to do that would be to build something. And they decided what they would build is a tower. They wanted to build a tower high enough that it would mark the earth, that everyone would know who they were because of this tower. In fact, they determined they would build a tower to the heavens, a tower that would reach to God. And yet, if you remember how uh, that building project turned out, it didn't go so well. (laughs) In fact, the effort itself began to divide the people, so much so that God even confused their languages. They couldn't even communicate with one another. Well, the author of the article uses that as an illustration uh, to, to describe the problems he sees with social media. He says social media was supposed to bring us together, but it's driven us apart. It was supposed to bring us together, create a sense of community. I mean, we call them Facebook friends, right? (laughs) Oh, that's ironic, isn't it? (laughs) What an unfriendly place Facebook can be. But it was fascinating as I found myself nodding along, reading the article. Yeah, yeah, you're making a good point there. Oh, I love use of the Bible. Yeah, it makes sense. When I got to the end, I realized he had fallen short of the real point that was to be made. And the real point is this, social media is not the problem. It's not Twitter or X or whatever we call it these days. Not Facebook, it's not Insta, as my daughters call it. It's, it's none of those things. It's, it's not the platform. It's not the screen or the size of the screen. It's not the keyboard or the size of the keyboard. No, the real problem's right here. It's a problem of the heart. Because you see the words where they're printed or spoken simply reveal the heart, the sinfulness of our heart. Jesus said as much when he was speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 12. Jesus said to them, well, well, he started out with a little name calling. He said, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. How can you who are evil do anything good? And then he said this, the words reveal the heart. And so it is 
You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it is in agreement. Fascinating here in Romans 3, uh, Paul, like James, and following the example of our Lord, points uh, to the problem of words simply revealing a greater problem, the sinfulness of our heart, just as Jesus called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Paul uses that same imagery. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or of snakes, of vipers, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Brood of vipers, a bunch of snakes. The venom of snakes. Anybody know a good snake story? <laughs> I have several. <laughs> but my best one comes from my teenage years. I grew up just across the mountains from you. Uh, I grew up in the mountains of uh, East Tennessee along Tennessee-Kentucky line. In fact, our little town of 2,000, half the town's in Kentucky, half in Tennessee. So uh, the good thing for me last night is I could go either way. Uh, but I ended up with a winning team. I always do in a contest like that. If anybody was paying attention to college football last night. But uh, I found out when I was, I guess, between my seventh and eighth grade year of middle school about a summer camp experience that, that intrigued me. Uh, it was a camp out in West Tennessee, Milan, Tennessee, not too far out of Memphis, uh, that was a wildlife conservation camp. I, I love the outdoors and I love wildlife. and. I, I was immediately interested in it. You spend a couple weeks in the summer at this camp, and then I began to hear more about it. And when I heard that one of the things you get to do at conservation camp is dissect a beaver, I thought, uh, oh, that'd be fun. You know, the mind of a teenage boy, I don't know. But uh, we did dissect that beaver. It was interesting that the beaver ended up being frozen, had to be thawed out in the bathtub in my cabin. <laughs> but we thawed it out, and we, we dissected him. It was a good time. Uh, but another thing I heard that you got to do at conservation camp is you get to have rattlesnake for supper one night. I'd never tasted rattlesnake. I thought, oh, I'd like to do that. But there were a couple things that made conservation camp like legendary. Uh, one was that at conservation camp, there's this thing called the snake roundup and also the snake bite club. And hearing about those two things, I said, I'm in. And so I got on a bus from the mountains of East Tennessee and Rode that school bus for nine hours to get over to camp. That's a long time on a school bus, I'll tell you. But, but conservation camp turned out to be everything it had been promised to be. We had a great time. We dissected that beaver. We had rattlesnake for supper. And then the night of the snake roundup came around. And, and here's how that worked. We had ridden those school buses uh, to camp. We got back on those school buses. And they took us out to a swampy area just outside of Memphis, Tennessee. And they set us out in the swamp. And our assignment for the night was to catch snakes all night long. Now, can you imagine how that'd go today? <laughs> you wouldn't as much as get the kids on the bus. Somebody would file a lawsuit. They'd shut that operation down. But I I'm here to tell you, in 1983, you could literally load a school bus full of kids, dump them in a swamp, and tell them to catch snakes all night and get away with it. <laughs> and that's what we did. Those were good days. But it was the very next day that we were really waiting for because the next day was when one of the camp counselors took some of the non-venomous, the non-poisonous snakes we'd caught the night before. He put them in a pillowcase, Pastor Josh. He carried them all around camp. And anybody who wanted to had the opportunity to voluntarily join the snake bite club. Now, here's how that worked. Very simple process. Put your hand in the pillowcase. You're inducted. <laughs> <laughs> the 
The problem was, by the time that pillowcase full of snakes got down to my cabin, it was the cabin we thought the beaver out in the bathtub, it was all the way down at the end of the row of cabins. Those snakes must have been tired. <laughs> because I manned up and put my hand in that pillowcase, and nothing happened. So I looked at the counselor, I said, sir, nothing's happening, what do I do? He said, well, pull one out. So I fish around for just a moment. I get my hand around a big fat one and I pull it out. It's hanging there from my hand about as disinterested in me as my teenage daughter. <laughs> I mean, nothing's happening. And so I ask him again, I said, what do I do now? He said, well, slap him. <laughs> in case you didn't know, <laughs> snakes don't like to be slapped. And when I slapped him, he slapped me back. <laughs> it was a toothy slap right on the back of my hand. And that's the story of the day I joined the Snake Bite Club. <laughs> now, I need to make two very quick disclaimers. First, that was not church camp. <laughs> okay, I'm a Baptist from the mountains. I'm not that kind of Baptist. <laughs> we had those churches in our community. I was not a member. But another disclaimer, that actually wasn't my first induction to the snake bite club because you see I was born a member of that club the Bible's full of references to snakes to vipers to asps the first one comes early in the scriptures you remember that one don't you the old serpent slithers his way into the garden to tempt the man and the woman to do explicitly what God had told them not to do. And they did. And they were bitten. As the Lord confronts the man and the woman and the serpent, Genesis 3, and as he speaks judgment upon them, it's interesting what the Lord says about the extension of that judgment that curse where God said to the woman why is this you've done the woman said the serpent deceived me and I ate then the Lord speaks uh, a word of judgment that uh, really is is sobering and and what we need to understand today it was a word that was spoken not just to those who were in the garden as a word is spoken about you and me Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Listen to verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and, listen, her offspring. And we see it, don't we? We see it in the offspring of Adam and Eve. The curse consequence for sin knowing that as Paul says in the book of Romans the curse of Adam extends to every generation but also recognizing that every generation makes the same decision as Adam and Eve the decision to willfully disobey our creator and Cain does it does he not as he kills his own brother Spiritual lostness entered the world there in the garden as Adam and Eve sinned against God. And, and we see in the next generation the evidence of spiritual lostness in their children. And we see it in every generation. 
We see it in Noah's generation, and God brings judgment upon the earth through the flood. We see it in generations of the prophets as uh, the Lord uh, speaks of the impending judgment that is to come for the sinfulness, the rebellion of the people. But even then, God begins to speak about a solution to this great problem as the prophets speak of a Messiah who is to come, who will bear the sins of the people. But the problem continues in every generation, and I submit to you today that this is a greater problem in your generation than in any generation that has gone before. Why would I say that lostness is a greater problem today than it's ever been? You were paying attention just about a year ago. Global population crossed 8 billion. More people in the world than any time in human history. And more lost people. We track the number each year, the average number of people who die lost around the world having given no indication if they have heard the gospel, or if they've heard the gospel, they believe the gospel. From last year to this year, it took the largest jump in human history. Last year, we were saying that number's in 150 plus thousand. This year, went up to more than 173,000. That's the number of people who today will die around the world having given no indication that they've heard the gospel, or if they have heard it, that they believed it and been saved. There is no greater problem in our world today than that problem. Lostness is the world's greatest problem. Thank God there's a solution. Just as the prophets said he would come, the Messiah came. Jesus came and laid his life down to die for the sins of the world. In fact, trying to help Nicodemus understand why he had come and who he was. You might remember in John chapter 3, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus and said, there's a solution to your problem, to your sinfulness. You need to be born again. And Nicodemus is struggling to understand, how does that happen? How does an old man get born again? And and it's fascinating to me that as Jesus is explaining it to Nicodemus, he tells Nicodemus a snake story. It's actually another Old Testament record of snake bite. It comes from the wilderness wanderings when the children of Israel were on their way to the promised land, but that generation of Israelites, like everyone before and everyone to come, had sinned against God and they were rebelling against God. God is judgment. You might remember as judgment, God sent poisonous snakes into the camps of the Israelites. The snakes were biting the people and they were dying. People began to cry out to God for mercy, for forgiveness, repenting. And Moses cried out on their behalf. And the Lord, who is a merciful God, responded with a solution. He said, Moses, fashion a serpent of bronze. Set it on a pole and hold it up in the camp. And anyone who's bitten by one of these poisonous serpents, these deadly vipers in the camp, if they'll just look at that serpent of bronze, they won't die. They'll live. 
And Jesus, trying to help Nicodemus understand who he was and why he has come, references that. And and Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Any who would look to him would have eternal life. And he was lifted up on the cross where he died for your sin. And my sin, the sin of the world. The Bible says if you believe that, you're willing to trust in Jesus and what he did for you. He died for you and he was raised. We call that faith. You're willing to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus as a Savior. We call that repentance. If you're willing to confess him as Lord, the Bible says in that very moment your greatest problem will be solved. You'll be forgiven. You'll be adopted into the Father's family. You'll be spiritually born again. Separation from God where there is no love and where there is no life and where there is no comfort and where there is no joy is not your eternal destiny. No heaven. We're a God who is love. We're a spirit of God who is our comforter. Where Christ is our joy and Jesus is life. That is what awaits you. You'll put your trust in him today. The Bible says today for you is a day of salvation. The greatest problem we solved. If you were to ask me why Taylor's First Baptist Church exists, I'd tell you this. You're here to address the world's greatest problem. Because you know the solution, and it is the gospel. If you were to ask me why the International Mission Board exists, I'd tell you the same thing. For 178 plus years, Southern Baptists have been sending missionaries to address the world's greatest problem. We're hiring today. The Lord has laid the nations on your heart. You're ready as a young people, to a young person to uh, take a summer mission trip, uh, come with us through Go Impact. If uh, you're ready in your college years to look at maybe exploring a, a, a two-year program called our Journeyman Program, be a part of a new effort that we have to get the gospel to the most unreached people in the world, to places where the gospel is not yet gone. We call those the unengaged peoples. We have a plan for you to be able to do that. Maybe the Lord is calling you to career missions. Oh, we'd love to talk with you about what that looks like at the IMB. Retired or near retiring, wanting to invest some of those years in making an eternal difference, we'd love to talk to you. The IMB is sending retirees today. It really doesn't matter what your your profession has been. Uh, We can use you. Retired school teacher, retired doctor, retired nurse, retired pastor, retired farmer, Retired uh, technology worker. Hey, listen, we can even use retired attorneys at the IMB. <laughs> the Lord's put the nations on your heart. Please, at the end of the service, uh, go out to one of these missionaries who is in the vestibule. Talk to them about what that might look like. Because the reality is, it's going to take all of us to address the world's greatest problem. Many years ago, there was a couple of men in a church on a weekday evening met in the church parking lot. 
church a lot like this one in the sense that it was a Baptist church and it was a church with a parking lot. <laughs> a little unlike this one in the sense that that entire church building and the parking lot would fit in this room. <laughs> Just a little church and a little town in the mountains. They met there on a weekday evening because it was church visitation night, and so they did what they'd come to do. They walked through the neighborhoods of the little town, knocking on doors, inviting people to church. Some point in the evening, they made their way up a, a steep hill in that little mountain town, stepped up on the porch of a little rental property at the address of 210 Province Street. There they knocked on the door. A young man came to the door, his mid-20s. I don't know if they knew about his circumstances. Again, it was a small town. They may have known all about him. You know how small towns are. Had they known, what they would have known is that he was about two years past the divorce and that uh, he was raising his three kids on his own. At that point, they would have been ages three, four, and six. I don't know if they knew any of that. What they could not have possibly known is that the four-year-old somewhere in the house with somebody... Someday be the president of the International Mission Board. But they knew enough. They knew enough to know people not in church need to be in church. Broken families need the Lord. And the greatest need in any person's life is to have their greatest problem fixed and only Jesus can fix it. So when dad came to the door, they invited him to church. Thankfully, he accepted their invitation Managed to get three rowdy boys ready on his own. Next Sunday, he took us to church. He did it Sunday after that and the Sunday after that. And what we found there was just what I found here when I walked across the road and into the building today. We found a church family that loved us, welcomed us, shared the gospel with us. A few years later, another knock at the door. We still live in that little rented house. Dad went to the door. Our pastor was standing there. Pastor Allen had come at Dad's invitation. My older brother had been asking questions about the gospel. Pastor Allen came. He sat in the green chair in the corner of our living room. He shared the gospel with my older brother. My younger brother and I sat in the floor, and we listened in. Brother Allen got three for one that night. We all put our trust in Jesus. Baptized a few weeks later together in the baptistry of the little First Baptist Church of Jellicoe, Tennessee. I can't tell you how grateful I am for a couple of members who decided to be on mission. For a couple of worshipers who decided to become soul winners. Walking through their town, inviting people to church. And for a pastor like your pastor and your pastors, whose greatest joy it is to share the gospel with someone who has yet to believe. How grateful I am for that little church. How grateful I am for this big church. You know, you wouldn't have to go far out of the parking lot here to find a broken family, a lost man, a woman, boy, or girl. That's why you're here. You know their problem. You know the solution. Get on a plane like these six or seven, Stephen, and so many others from here at Taylor's First. 
we'll show you billions of them. Church, that's why you're here. Don't forget why you're here. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for so great a solution, so great a salvation. Thank you, Lord, for your willingness, Lord Jesus, to come and, and to be the solution by laying down your life for us. Lord, I pray that there's one here today who has not uh, yet trusted you, uh, one who's still carrying around their greatest problem. I pray today, Lord, that you would move in their heart and life and draw them to yourself. I pray today they would repent and put their trust in you and be saved. Those of us who have, Lord, I pray that you would not let us uh, for one moment escape the reality of the fact that you have left us here on the earth because so many have yet to hear. Our problem is solved, but, but it's still the greatest problem in the world, and you've called us to go. Lord, might you find a willingness uh, in each of our hearts today to say, yes, I will go wherever you send me, near or far. I'll go where you send me. In Jesus' name, amen.